Hi, it's John Sumser again, and we're here with another episode of The Work. My co-host, Gina Kelly, and I come to you every week with deep, meaningful conversations about the fundamental questions in the HR technology universe. Today, we're going to be spending time with my good friend, Stella Lupishor, and I, I don't even know how to begin to tell you about Stella Lubashar. Stella has the most amazing portfolio of things that she does. She's the heartbeat of the New York City HR People Analytics Meetup, which is one of two national meetups on the topic. She is a senior fellow with me at the conference board. She is buried deep into the woodwork at NYU's Human Capital master's degree program. She is the author of a book called Humans at Work with Anna Travis, who is the head of the NYU project. And she runs an amazing network called, you're going to have to help me get this. um, Amazing community. Amazing community. community. I was fascinated by that. (laughs) And, And so, so, so tell me what I missed, Stella, and then we're going to start by talking about amazing community. I do sleep and I do have three kids and uh, I balance it all in this spirit of the future of work trends. Uh, you did not miss anything. I also do consulting um, and my passion and my specialty is uh, workplace experience analytics and technology, because I see those three really tightly interconnected and uh, human-centric design thinking uh, is enabling us to look at the worker experience. Technology can enable a lot of the uh, uh, removal of the friction between the workers and the workplace. And then analytics can help us inform where the interventions are needed or what the nudges might be or what the outcomes that will impact the business results or make any of the leaders care about this um, will come from. So that's me. So, so I forgot one really important thing, which is which is that if, if you're listening and you don't know what Miro is, Miro is a digital whiteboard tool that allows group participation to build whiteboard projects. And Stella is the most amazing facilitator of those things. She can sit in her chair and take input from 20 people and organize it in real time on the fly inside of the whiteboard so that everybody in the room feels like they had input into the decision. It's astonishing to see. The beautiful thing about Miro's is one of those tools that allow people who speak and post it some bullet points to really be able to express themselves. <laughs> I am a fan of post-it notes, yes. <laughs> so amazing community. Yes. Tell amazing. me. Amazing Community is a nonprofit organization um, expanding the work horizon for women 45 plus. So the goal is to really help women who many times when they reach this point in their life, uh, uh, who experience ageism for all sorts of reasons, including some of the practices that HR is putting in place, some of the analytics that perpetuate some of the biases, some of the algorithms that get in the way of um, women staying in the labor market uh, to, to support their financial security in the long term. And we want to not only raise awareness about the importance of 
paying attention to age diversity. And it's not to say that it doesn't impact men, it impacts just as much. Um, so age diversity is important, but also helping women empower themselves with knowledge about all of these emerging trends, uh, how technologies uh, are impacting what we do and how we do, what skills we need to acquire so we can stay relevant, so we can stay um, engaged in the labor market and maybe even start our own business and uh, be able to uh, utilize um, all of these discoveries, uh, uh, innovations, um, enablements to build whatever the next phase of our lives may look like. So what's the thing you're most proud of that you've done there? Uh, we are kicking off literally a couple of days ago, we kicked off a new program called Network Ships at HSBC specifically, which is a new program um, to expose women to new careers. Many times they will take time off, they will decide to leave an industry for all sorts of reasons or um, finally be ready to return after uh, kids leave the house. And they may not know what the opportunities are, they may think, well, I need an education or I need um, a certain degree or I need the whole new network, which takes effort. So the program we're building is to do exactly that, how women can learn what a day in the life of a financial analyst looks like or what other types of jobs exist out there. And then what are the stories and inspirations they may get from those who have been there in those situations and how they navigated this transition, as well as how to interview the basic practical steps, what the resume needs to look like, um, how do you prepare for the virtual conversations or in person, what do you need to know to be able to pivot if you decide that that's the place for you. So hopefully we will uh, uh, have a very successful program. It's starting on April 8th. So we have a lot to report once uh, once the program is completed at the end of May. Awesome. So so you have a book that's just about on the streets that you wrote with Anna Tavis called Humans at Work. Yeah. What's the blurb? We are on a precipice or have been for quite some time seeing weak signals. But right now, I think it's palpable, the shift in the power dynamics between the work environment and the workers. And I'm intentionally using the word worker as opposed to employees. I've noticed because that. I, I wanted to ask you why that was, yeah. It is a lot more inclusive. If mm. you think about the employees, in a way, that's a privileged group to begin with. Right. They have employment, it comes with stability, it comes with benefits, and there's a huge part of the workforce that is in a lot more precarious or um, unstable uh, type of relationship with the work. So to me, it is not only that the employees are experiencing a bigger power um, in their relationship with the employers, but I think the workforce in general, uh, we're seeing a very um, different set of um, preferences emerging, different expectations from the work environment. Uh, people are demanding uh, safer work conditions, uh, better compensation, uh, better treatment, uh, less monitoring. So they are demanding a more humanized work environment for them to do what they need to do. And the book is 
half historical uh, uh, demonstration of all the evolution um, happening in the work environment. There's nothing new here. The world of work has been evolving for centuries and the relationship of humans um, with the work have been evolving for centuries. What we have right now is new types of um, technologies and new opportunities to put this puzzle of work together in a different way. Would you also say that we're at a point in time where the worker has more power than they have previously because of the talent shortages? Absolutely. And that's not going to go any away anytime soon. Um, a couple of things that are happening, right? On one side, we have a lot of demographic changes. We especially mature economies, are aging at a faster rate. We have uh, increased mobility, and not only between geographical regions, between uh, countries, urban areas and rural areas, but between jobs and uh, whatever you want to call this recent uh, R revolution, be that resignation or reassessment or reimagining. It is an evidence of that movement. And people are feeling a lot more comfortable to step away and build a livelihood in non-traditional sense. No longer you have uh, a, a, a pathway that has to go through a college or some sort of a um, higher education in order to get a career. No longer you have to have a significant amount of assets to be able to start the business. So there is a lot of opportunities for people to do take advantage of the technology to create an outlet for their creativity or for their passion and not be constrained by um, a lot of strict norms and uh, policies and protocols that a workplace, a traditional workplace will, um, will put in place for people. I wonder, I wonder, I, I, I heard Gene mention talent shortage, and, mm -hmm. and I always find that to be such a class-oriented view of the world, that because, because the workforce participation rate in the United States is around 60%, um, and the things that are in uh, short supply look like people who've been processed through the institutions of privilege, right? They have degrees or they, they have all of this, this work, but the, there doesn't appear to be a talent shortage um, at the minimum wage level. There may, there may be a, there may be a wage problem at the minimum wage level, but there, but there, but there are no, there are no shortage of people at what looks like the lower end of the social spectrum. Um, do you think that, um, the idea might extend to being more inclusive along class lines as well as um, the other dimensions that we've been talking about. Absolutely. And it is, in a way, it's not only the class lines, but also other kinds of privileges that are emerging. Like if you have an occupation and privilege to be able to work from home and work remotely, you will be now the digital affluent, so to speak. So you're moving from digital fluency to digital affluence. If you don't have um, caregiving responsibilities, you may have a bigger advantage. If you have the support structure at home to help you out to, to deal with all the demands, you may have a different privilege. And we're seeing women leaving at record rate the labor market just because 
predominantly they will uh, have to balance both the work and the home responsibilities. You have people with health conditions. We have uh, organizations saying we need to plan for skills and skills-driven planning, which to me is yet another way to make people even more replaceable, just because um, you're going to even further narrow down the talent pool you're going after to really purple um, or rainbow unicorns with, uh, you know, uh, several degrees and very specialized skills, which again is something only those who are affluent can afford. Um, And the question is how long the labor market and the organizations will take to start making changes. Um, I do hear that some organizations are already grappling with the fact that they cannot deliver on business commitments just because they don't have the talent. Many organizations plan their uh, office footprint differently just because they need to be closer to where people live because of some of the infrastructural issues, the transportation, uh, uh, lack of transportation. So, it is starting, but it's slow. We'll see how um, whatever this economy or transition back to the open economy would look like and when that will happen. And I hope it doesn't happen too fast to push us back into the uh, the reality that we used to know, because I don't think people are going to tolerate that. I think we are, we've experienced um how things could be. We have formed new habits. We formed new um, principles for what life needs to look like. And I think there's no way going back to what it used to be for many. Let me let me drill down on something. I, I am personally of the opinion that this aggressive move that our industry is making towards skills is a train wreck. And we're just watching a slow motion train wreck because the emphasis on skills takes away the thing that makes opportunity actually work, which is room for initiative. If you can only hire people with a certain range of skills to do a certain job, what you get are people who are tired of doing that job and nobody who is willing to take the risk to learn. Um, Agree. And how do you how do you work with that? How do you work with this sort of monolithic thing about skills when you're trying to open the door to people who are different? I love this question. And I I usually start with the fact that the, the job, the construct of job, it's a limiting construct. It's one of those barriers that gets in a way of finding talent. So it's not that we have a shortage of talent, right? We have the job description, which were written maybe 10, 15 years ago, and then sprinkled on top with some new fashion, mm-hmm. uh, fashionable words and skills. <laughs> and then, of course, you go unicorn hunting and you cannot find anything. But the purpose of the job description was to make people replaceable at the core of it, right? Because if you're not uh, uh, delivering on what you're supposed to deliver, we'll find somebody else and put them in the container. And the skills-driven conversation is now taking it even further down and breaking it down into smaller components. And it is the wrong direction because none of us are a skill of bags, a bag of skills, sorry. None of us, um, just because we have the skills, uh, may necessarily want to do them again just because we already have them. So the 
question is, is there a different way to um, rethink this relationship and how we hire and how do we find talent? And the book is an attempt of trying to get to that uh, uh, puzzle and how we reconstruct it. And one possible way and solution is to think about the essence of what needs to get done, right? What is the work? We start with job description when those are outdated or irrelevant uh, on day one. Um, But if we think about what is the essence of what needs to get done, then it's much easier to think what are the spectrum of workers that can come and do it. And it's not just regular employees and contractors. You can have a group of people. You can have uh, uh, chatbots. You can have um, alliances and um, partnerships that you can engage with to accomplish that activity of work. And of course, the tension becomes how do you orchestrate all of this and how do you ensure quality and how do you ensure matching of the right skills to the right work. But all of this is solvable through technology. Once you understand what the work is and the worker who can do that, then you can possibly consider the most optimal work environment, the workplace that will allow the work to be executed properly. And it's important to consider the fact that it's no longer a physical space or office environment and the remote. It's really a fusion of the digital and physical work environment. And you need to allow people and enable them to do the work in whatever location or destination or time zone um, they they prefer. And then once you have these three W's, right, the work, the work er and workplace matched, another consideration is to think about the worth. What is the value exchange? Not everybody comes to work just for money. Not everybody comes to work just for benefits. The more holistically you can think about what is the expectation depending on the life stage, depending on the circumstances, depending on the interests, um, the more you can provide the perfect mix and match to accomplish what you need to do as a business. At the same time, provide the fair exchange in value to the worker. And that can come in you know, in, in form of uh, skills development, that can come in form of ability to leave a legacy, ability to... Um, uh, work with uh, uh, innovative solutions or feel proud for the product that the company brings to the market or attain self-transcendence. You know, we may have very different aspirations and some people come to work just to do what they need to do and leave at five o'clock so they can focus on their life uh, outside work. And that's fine too. We shouldn't expect everybody to be happy and engaged and workplace shouldn't be the source of everything in the world. So I'm going to tie the three things together now, right? We've got an amazing community, we've got the book, and we've got uh, human capital analytics. How do you solve the pay equity problem when you have people, when you have the kind of value structure that you just talked, which is more than money, and pay equity, as near as I understand it, is about money. Um, how do you, how do you, I, I go to work for uh, self-realization. Um, how do you factor that into my, am I getting paid as much as Gene is? Question. It is a tough one. And I think the challenge we have from an analytical perspective is 
we are only able to measure the tangible things, right? So if it's a money, if it's a number of widgets produced, if it's a number of pages written, all of that is measurable and we can put system in place, we can track them, we can set goals, evaluate and forecast, et cetera. When it comes to intangible things, we have no good vocabulary nor measurement system to evaluate like ability to grow, like ability to work with people you care about and they support you, um, ability to um, have access to mental health support and not be stressed. And I would venture to say that the reason why we are possibly experiencing some of these inequities is because women tend to value more of these intangibles. They may want to have more balance. They may want to prioritize their family and uh, uh, caregiving responsibilities. And that comes at the cost. So it's a trade-off. The challenge we have as a society, though, is the structures we put in place, such as a career, what defines a career, that now is getting codified into uh, all the data that is training the algorithms, goes against us. So a woman over 45 with career breaks with choices they made because they needed to prioritize families will not match that perfect unicorn recipe uh, formula. And unfortunately, they will be penalized. So one opportunity I see is really scrutinizing a lot of the uses of technology to make workplace decisions with the lens of that intangible uh, impact on on different segments because it's not just women, right? It's people with disabilities, it's people with different uh, um, cognitive uh, uh, expectations and not only scrutinizing and assessing the, uh, uh, the, the implications and the biases that can creep into that, but also um, providing alternatives, right? If you have a an interviewing system that you're using. Maybe somebody has a um, heavy accent and they will not be able to perform well on that interview. Provide alternative for them. If a woman is not able to um, relocate at the moment just because uh, she is supporting her spouse career, do not penalize her career, right? Provide alternatives and uh, reassess. Don't put them in a the bucket saying they're no longer a high potential. Um, so it's exa- it requires examining the end-to-end employment journey from the point where people discover the brand until they decide to come bring their talent, until they perform, develop, grow, get inspired, until they leave. And then finding those intervention points and the data in support of um, those potential disadvantage um, situations, and then trying to put intentional interventions to create a more inclusive experience for them. I would, I would roll my eyes back into my head so hard if I didn't know that you are the sort of the doyen of human capital analytics and you are five years down the road towards thinking out the details of the measurement regimes to do this. Um, um, and I wish I wish there was a way to give the audience some insight into what you know and learn and have networked about in the in the people analytics business. So so you got a couple of minutes before we have to wrap up. Can you hit that one? Absolutely. So from analytics perspective, 
um, I think there is an opportunity to stop trying to um, establish foundational things. We should focus on the quality of questions. And those questions can come in three major buckets. One is how might we improve the experience of the workers? Second one is how might we improve the experience and the efficiency of HR programs? And then the third one is how might we improve the organizational outcomes, be that customer impact or revenue or reputation externally. And this requires a different way of thinking about the data you need to be able to answer those questions. Um, it requires a different type of technology to uh, to support all of this analysis. And then it requires a very different way of governing all of this uh, because it's very easy to um you know, revert back to let's measure the data that we have and let's look at that as opposed to saying we don't know a lot of things and we need to either acquire more data or put interventions and processes in place to capture the data. Or in general, let's have a philosophical conversation. Do we even need to measure something like this um, altogether? But I feel that people analytics is really evolving into a more of a business uh, imperative because people are becoming increasingly a bigger source of um, uh, organizational survival and, and success. And there is a more demand for uh, reporting. The disclosure requirements are emerging, new kinds of standards that are coming through the ISO. There are new initiatives to ensure transparent and ethical AI that are coming from the EEOC. So, I feel that there is a lot more awareness about the potential uh, impact, both positive and negative, of analytics use. And we, from an analytics perspective, as practitioners, are also evolving our vocabulary and knowledge and skills to be able to engage in this conversation. Well, I imagine that people are going to listen to this and they're going to want to talk to you. <laughs> well, how, can so. get, how can they get a hold of you? They can email me at Stella, S-T-E-L-A, with one L, at reframe.work, W-O-R-K. Or hit me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and all the other social media channels you're engaged with. I'm on TikTok, but I'm not active. So, Thanks, Stella. This has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Love your podcast. Thank <laughs> you.